Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, LARB HQ. I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Sitting down here today with Tosh Berman, formerly the book buyer at Book Soup on the Sunset Strip, founder of Tam Tam Books, specializing in international 20th century literature, and author of a new book, Sparks-tastic, 21 Nights with Sparks in London. You probably know the name Sparks. You probably know they're a band, especially if you're from Los Angeles, where the Sparks brothers and the Sparks brothers, the male brothers, these male brothers that make up Sparks are from, or if you're from London, I suppose, or if you're from, if you're from France and we're listening to pop music during a very specific couple of years, you probably know about Sparks, but you may not know about about Sparks. Tosh knows about Sparks. Let me ask you this. (laughs) I discovered Sparks in the 21st century long after you Mm. did, and I had the reaction that several other Sparks fans now had when they discovered Sparks, which is, first, is this band real? Are we sure they're real? Are we sure this isn't just a couple of middle-aged guys who made up a fake history and made up 21 albums, all of which they placed carefully in a historical era using the various subgenres of pop music? Is this not one big conceptual art project that was recently crafted? Because I would have heard about these guys otherwise. You're familiar with that reaction, right? Well, you found out the truth, and now you must die. Oh, jeez. This is going to be the last interview. <laughs> um, they work conceptually, actually. There's so many stories about Sparks, like where they came from. It seems like everybody feels they came from another part of the world where they did not come from. Many people think they're British because they really broke big in, in the UK in the early mm-hmm. 70s or mid-70s. Uh, some people think they're from France or from Belgium. Um, they're actually from Pacific Palisades. <laughs> Uh, as far as I know, and I do know them, they are brothers, Ron Mill and Russell Mill, and uh, they are Sparks. And uh, uh, they had various, they worked with various musicians for the past, oh, gosh, probably like 40 years now. Uh, but they still make records. They still, uh, they've been on, I think, every major label in the world at least twice. Um, and they're always 
known or popular in some part of the world. Mm-hmm. It seems like right now, it seems they're sort of now actually doing their first, not first, but they're actually touring the U.S. And they're going to tour Europe, and they're doing a show in Japan in July. Mm-hmm. So they play everywhere, and they played in Russia, East Europe. Mm-hmm. You say now they're actually touring the U.S., and you've talked about how people speculate that they must be from place X, Y, and Z around the world, but not America. What is so, what is so non-American? about Sparks. I would have said un-American, but that's not quite the word I'm looking for. That's such a, you know, they, okay, they sound like they're writing about American culture, but from a European viewpoint, mm. like mm. a European perspective. They are American outsiders in America? Worse, they're from Pacific Palisades. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, from, they're from the west side of Los Angeles. I, right. think, I think they were born in Venice, California, mm. and eventually moved to Pacific Palisades as teenagers or late you know, childhood. Um, they are outsiders. Um, they're outsiders like, I think, like a lot of great songwriters are outsiders. Mm. Uh, I'm, I always think of Sparks or Ron Mel's work and Russell's as sort of in the same line as Cole Porter, mm. uh, Ira Gershwin, uh, Irving Berlin. Um, sort of either like a very waspish um, Take on the world, a very sophisticated take on the world, or like a sort of like the old like sort of Jewish songwriters, or Broadway songwriters of the '30s and '20s and '40s, mm. and who are sort of outsiders just because they're, they're songwriters, they're they're uh, um, um, they have their you know sort of their own culture in a way. And Ronald Russell, in a way, belongs to that culture more than mm. say a rock and roll songwriter. Mm. When you first discovered Sparks, what? Did they represent the alternative to or an escape from for you? Escape from rock and roll imagery and rock and roll isms. Which which were who who was making those in that in that era? In my in my youth, <laughs> uh, I was pretty much my the music that I was really like as a teenager was really attracted to glam rock, uh, specifically David Bowie and all the side products of David Bowie. You know the Little Reeds, the Velvets, the uh, David Bowie was sort of the magnet, and then all these other people came from that flower, that flower bud. That's David Bowie. So, but at the same time, there it was the start of the whole singer songwriter movement, like a little canyon, like Joni Mitchell, uh, you know Neil Young, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, James Taylor. So on one side you have the James Taylor world, and then you have the glam rock world. And uh, the glam world, I was much more attracted to because of the visuals and the sort of superficiality of those bands. I like superficiality. I like mm. surface. Mm. And Sparks seems almost militant surfacey to me. Uh, uh, when I first saw a picture of them, um, is when around the time of Come Out of My House or their single, This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us, broke in, in the mm. UK, which I didn't hear at the time. Because, you know, it was before the internet, before, you know, even good radio that played imports or, you know. So I just remember looking at, at the Mildy Maker, which is a British uh, music weekly. Buying one of the three copies every week at the grocery store. Yes. Right? In Topang Canyon, which I was raised, <laughs> there's three copies of Mildy Maker sold there. And I bought one. And I don't know what the other two issues are. <laughs> what to the other two issues. But I saw this photograph of Ron Mel and Russell Mel together. And the first impression is Russell Mel has a sort of almost like a teen idol look. There's nothing gritty about him at all. This total teen idol. Non non-threatening non, kid. Non-threatening, very cute. Mm. But it's like a David Cassidy at the time but with an edge of mm. some sort. And then somebody introduced in the picture as his brother, Ron Mel, who dressed in 1930s clothing, 
and for Strange Enough, had either, it depends your point of view, a Charlie Chaplin mustache or a Hitler mustache. And the fact that he had his hair slicked back and he seemed the totally opposite of his brother. Just the dynamics of 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 those two together in one photograph really, it just just turned me on. And um, so, you know, months, weeks later, you know, Kimono My House, I bought an import copy of Kimono My House Mm -hmm. uh, at the local warehouse record store a record store chain at that time, very boring chain. Yeah. I saw Come On My House, and when I picked up the album, there was no lettering on the front cover at all at the time. Mm-hmm. It's just a picture of these two, I presume, Japanese women wearing kimonos, making sort of funny facial expressions. Right. And I thought, well, Come On My House, which I think is a, is a, a pun of an old song called Come To My House by, um, oh, shoot, uh, like not Dinah Shore, but somebody of that classic. Uh, yeah, was that? Oh, shoot, jeez. A great, like a jazz pop singer of the right, 50s. Right, right. That's the sensibility that we're calling on with that anyway. Yeah, like a pun. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, then I turned the cover around, then it has the name Sparks, Come On My House, the title, little pictures of their band, which were all English at the time, mm-hmm. and then a bigger photograph, which kind of interesting, separate themselves from the rest of the band, of Ronald Russell. And again, it was that photograph of, of uh, but a little bit more sinister, with more shadows of Russell mm-hmm. sort of looking like a, a, a perverse version of David Cassidy <laughs> or Leif Garrett or one of those, you know, yes. people. And then Ron Mel, who looked just, uh, in the photo, looked borderline really evil. <laughs> Not like fake evil or Alice Cooper type of evil, but there's something very insidious. Right. And again, the, the non-threatening and the threatening. Exactly. Hmm. And then, you know, look at the titles. This counting big enough for the both of us. Uh, falling in love with myself again. Uh, <laughs> in my family. Uh, and those song titles, this also in an either poetic or literary sense, it's really hit me. That's like, I love the song titles. It's, you sensed the off-kilteriness you would find within. Yeah. And also they were on Island Records, which at that time they had people like Roxy Music. Right. At the point where, and Eno, so this is the point of the time where um, they had artists on that label who were doing really interesting, weird work. So I figure like if they're on Island Records, they have to be kind of weird as well, right, sounding. Right, right. You mentioned an interest in surfaces that you have, and the surfaces of Sparks, of course, have always been interesting throughout their career, whether it's on the 21 album covers or elsewhere, or on stage. And I wonder, can we call Sparks a band that understands the importance of being not just a band, but generally speaking, and broadly speaking, an aesthetic entity? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And that's what appealed to me about them. Um, I felt... As a fan, like as a pop music fan, this is a band I was very comfortable to follow, right. to say I'm a fan of this band. Hmm. And, and for, for purely aesthetic reasons? Just visual enough. The visually was enough. Also, I like the provocativeness of uh, Ron Mel's look. I love right. the uh, the Chaplin Hitler thing. Because <laughs> in music, when you listen to, well, when I first heard the album, I was just, t- I mean, the first song was This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us. I was totally blown away by it. Because hmm. Russell's voice is like really high at the time, or still is. But his the lyrics, I couldn't understand the lyrics at all. It was just going like 100 miles per hour. And the music was going 110 miles per hour. And it was really in your face. I mean, you couldn't really... I couldn't imagine anybody to this day really ignoring that record. Right. You can hate it or you can turn it off. But this, it's, it's, it's almost um, equivalent to like punk rock or, or like Iggy's raw power. Something that gets in your face, you it's know. It's definitely not a background. Totally not background music. <laughs> Thank you. 
was struck by the beautiful melodies, even though they were fast-paced, which I presume, and also the wording, which I presume was better than average, because I couldn't really hear all the lyrics at the time. And and there's no ballast on that on that album, but there's such beautiful melodies in the album, and that's the way they form it and the way they sort of frame it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I just became an instant fan right away. I mean, right there and then, I just knew like this is people doing really interesting work mm-hmm. and um, I'm happy to be in, in their presence or in their world. In the seventies, you saw bands emerge that insisted it's all about the music, yes. but sparks it's about the music, but also equally everything else, right? Yes. I hate bands. I say they're in for the music. <laughs> Just day, It drives me up the wall. Cause you, cause you think they're lying or because you think that's not, it's, it isn't all about the music. I don't think it's ever about the music. Even with jazz uh, music, which I love, mm. had a. You know, I think I have really a hardcore mod aesthetic. Not mm. to mean that I am a mod or I dress like a mod, but I sort of appreciate the whole uh, stature of that world of a mod aesthetic, where it's a very strict mm. world. Mm. And you know, and for them, like listening to black music was totally visual because they're thinking of Motown, they're thinking of the choreography, they're thinking of the whole production of Motown records. So the whole, even jazz, like Miles Davis has a, mm. such an incredible visual presentation. Or Thelonious Monk, you know, these great, great, great composers. They never disappoint you by the album cover. Mm. You want to buy a good uh, jazz album, just go to Blue Note or Riverside <laughs> record label, choose a great cover, and it's going to be a great album. You write about every Sparks album in Sparks-tastic because it's about you attending shows of every album. They yeah. play every album, 21 Nights with Sparks in London. No coincidence they have 21 albums. At that time, had 21 albums. Can you judge a Sparks album by its cover? Good question. Um, it's always going to be quirky. That's mm-hmm. one thing. So it's kind of difficult. You know, they, they don't do... It's another thing about them. They're very not always obvious. Mm. It's not like Queen or, you know, Queen is like bingo. You know, you get it. Mm. Sparks is you have to really sort of live with it to get it. Mm. Um, and they do play with their iconic stance, you know. And it's kind of amazing when you think about it. Even if you never heard of Sparks or don't really know Sparks, you do know those album covers because other bands throughout the world have done their own parodies of those album covers mm. or their tribute to those album covers. I saw one for... Um, for uh, propaganda not long ago, a Japanese artist. Mm. And then there was these two, I can't remember who it was, these two women who uh, did the Big Beat cover, the Richard Avedon portrait of Sparks. Mm. So visually, obviously, they made a huge presentation on indie rock or, 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 or bands the last 10 years. Mm. Um, but no, it's not that easy. There's a lot of humor and, and pretty much everything they have put out graphically-wise. Mm. Especially in the 80s, uh, like Inks in My Pants, where like Ron is marrying, Ron is dressed up yes. as the bride, Russell is the, <laughs> the bridegroom. Uh, then uh, uh, pulling rabbits out of the hat, where uh, Ron is holding Russell as a dummy. You know, like right, a, like yes. um, so not your favorite album, but a, no, like a, a striking cover. Strike great cover. Uh, not my favorite album, but it's, but again, the humor is always there. Mm, mm. What does it say about Sparks that they would do such a thing of putting on 21 straight shows of 21 albums? And as far as I know, that's the only plan they ever had to do something like this. It's not like they're doing a series of all their albums in different countries. This was it. Yes. It was so much work for one big burst. What what does that tell you about this band? That they're totally conceptual or they're totally insane <laughs> or both. Um now it's very common for a band to do their popular album from beginning to end. Mm. You know, that's what they do. It's like, da-da, 
Sly 2 starts here. Yeah. Every Almost every band's been around longer than 10 years is doing going on tour, doing their one big album. The fact that Sparks is not doing Come On My House, which is probably every sort of considers the classic Sparks album, right. makes sense. But to do every album of theirs, including the ones that I don't like and ones that a lot of people don't like from beginning to end, mm-hmm. and you have to actually pay to go to these shows, right. and they're doing it very close to the versions or much as possible as, as the recorded versions. Mm-hmm. So, one, it's remarkable they did it. Two, because they have to sort of relearn the songs or rearrange the beginning. Because when you play a record on a needle, it just starts up. But, you know, they had to figure out how to start the song mm-hmm. and then how to stop the song. You know, they can't. Right. Fade it. Like, down. you know, turn that to the longest, lower, lower. <laughs> so, so they had to figure that out. Hmm. And they had to relearn, they had to relearn, like, a lot of, I mean, well, almost all their songs they had to relearn, because they don't tour a lot. Hmm. So, this is like sort of, and the fact they did it in one location um, uh, in London, and, 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 it, and I think in their way, they were trying to promote their, their, that album, their new album at the time. Hmm. And, they thought, hey, why don't we just do a, like a you know like a gimmick thing? We'll just do every album to, to yeah. that point. Right, right. Uh, which is kind of great about them because they sort of whatever they do, they always seem to do things the hard way. <laughs> they never take the easy route. I want to talk about how you came to the point where you attended these shows in London, but we know you did. So yeah. you're 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 sitting there, you're watching these shows, mm. and you you're describing the shows in the book as you're describing the work that you know went into these shows, the, the rehearsals all day except Sunday with barely a break all the time. And it sounds like Sparks keeps this schedule or a similar schedule just normally when they're making their music, when they're rehearsing for any show, they're they're a factory in some sense or they're, they're as dedicated as machines are in a factory. And I had the same thought while I was watching Apocalypse Now, screening at the Egyptian a little while ago, which is that like, oh, now I see, I understand why you would want to give yourself over to some all-consuming uh, project or effort or job or just thing. People talk about, religious people talk about how they want to uh, they want to serve something higher than themselves. And I never quite understood that. But thinking about Coppola making Apocalypse Now over in the Philippines yeah. and enduring everything he endured and, and Sparks making any given album, I suppose, or putting on a 21-night show of all their albums. You sort of, you see what that means, don't you? Yeah, well, it's interesting. They're very self-contained. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just them and whoever they hire or who they work with. Uh, they record everything in their own studio. Uh, they have their own label now. And they pretty much, like, probably similar to, I think, what I always heard about craft work, how they work. Mm-hmm. You know, they go, you know, they, they, they meet at 9 o'clock and they work till like 6 o'clock every day. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I think they take Sundays off and I, you know, I, I presuming that it's like sit there and look at each other until something comes up or, or they actually have a, you know, they have, they have various projects on hand that they're working on, right. but it is very much of a, uh, not only of a lifestyle, but it is, there is like a job since, uh, I, I sense a job sensibility where they're almost clocking in and clocking out and clocking out for lunch type of, uh, uh, a system in their mm-hmm. lives. And we think of Sparks as, as a prolific band because they've recorded so much mm-hmm. and they do shows like this. But you think of that schedule. You think of, well, they've been doing this for uh, since the late 60s, early 70s. They must have, they must have thrown out so much over the years. You think of all, think of the material that they decided hasn't worked or that they've cast aside or that they've, they've changed into, into something unrecognizable. You know, I think of the, uh, Five years they spent, you mentioned, doing the soundtrack for uh, My the Psychic Girl, which yeah. never appeared. Mm-hmm. And then the, the work they did with Jacques Tati, mm-hmm. uh, who died while they were working on the, the score for a film, a film which I'm sure our mutual friend Michael Silverblatt would have 
exploded with delight at actually having existed. So maybe it's better that they didn't get pulled off. Uh, uh, it saved a life. He would have yeah. he would have found too much pleasure in it. Yes. But do you think about that? That just the, the discard stack of sparks must be the biggest thing in the world. I th- actually, I don't think there is. Oh, I think really? I think their their outlet is very controlled and very uh, precise. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of like sparks bootlegs of all sorts. Um, a friend of mine who is more internet savvy than I am made me like this us like sparks everything you know like half, when, when they were called half nelson their first yes. demo stuff but that, considering you know they've been around for 40 years very little outtakes i think mm. i think ron and russell are very they're very focused mm. that's one thing i noticed about them they're very very focused on what they want to do mm. they have like a vision and they'll and they'll do it although sometimes i think this is kind of insane like doing 21 shows and 21 you know yes. so nights that their vision is so strong. And I don't think they have, you know, like, they don't sit around and jam, you know. Mm, I right. imagine there's, like, a lot of Rolling Stones stuff out there where there's jamming. Right. It's, you know, Ron Mel is, is I, and again, I really don't know what their work process, and I, in a way, I didn't want to know. Mm. I mean, this is one thing about the book. It's not a, a documentary of the band right. or the making of, of these shows. Mm. It's more of me being a fan, being the audience, and taking this all in, as well as talking about London mm-hmm. and a little bit of Paris. And in my mind, I'm talking about Sparks culture, which sort of I inherited or as a fan, I'm sort of riffing off on. Mm-hmm. But um, over the years, I, I, I know them quite well. And never have they ever played me anything that's half-baked or, or half-finished or or stuff. I do know there is a sound, there, there is a Maya, the psychic, psychic girl, um, songs out there which i mm. don't think i've heard but that is few and and beyond that there's not that much material of mm. of not released mm. how did you come to the point then where it became inevitable that you fly to london and attend all these shows you, you open the book talking a bit about the struggle to decide but at what point did it seem like you not just wanted to but needed to go there it was very strange um well i heard about the shows i heard through them uh and at the time, I was for friendly, but not like super close friends. Mm-hmm. And um, and I thought, what a great idea, and though and totally ins- insane idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> but then I th- but I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great just to go just to one show or two shows? I thought two. Wow, that'd be incredible. First, you know, not even come out of my house. It's the first two albums. Mm-hmm. And then it just dawned on me, like, wait, if I'm going to just go to those two and go to London, I have to go to all the shows. It was almost like an overnight. Like, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I said, I have to do this. And I said, I have to write a book about it. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was clear I was not going to write a, a, a biography of the band or, again, a documentary on how they're going to do this. I'm actually more interested in the mystery of Sparks, mm-hmm. the mythology of them, than actually talking about what is the real Ron and Russell or uh, how they do things. That I was not really that interested in. I actually prefer believing in the myth. <laughs> I, or, you know, and the myth, they, they haven't told me the myth. I just heard the myth... <laughs> through you know, for other for other you know resources, right. like there were models for Sears, you know. <laughs> well, the, or their mothers uh, was the president of their fan club, oh, whose yeah. name is Mary Martin. <laughs> and that was another thing that struck me. It was like Mary Martin, because Mary Martin, as a child, I used to love watching Peter Pan. Uh, you can't watch. I don't think. I don't think. It, maybe it's on YouTube, but as a child of the late fifties, early sixties. Every every year, they showed or rebroadcast this live uh, production of Peter Pan with mm-hmm. Mary Martin, the lead, playing mm-hmm. Peter Pan. 
because women always play Peter Pan. Right, right, right. And uh, so as a child, it was that age where I was totally uh, in fall with seeing the show. I looked mm-hmm. forward to it. Mm-hmm. So I kept thinking, then, wait, is Mary Martin Ronald Russell's mom or something happened to Mary Martin where she had to end up being the president of the Sparks <laughs> fan club? Or, you know, it was like all these, you know, like, what, huh? How does this work, How does this work out? But, um, but so there's all these sort of myths about them, you know, where they have the T- TMI show, the Tammy show, which I actually was there as a mm-hmm. child. And I kind of appreciate them never, ever talking about it or either commenting on it. Not many people get to know the actual bands that they have followed closely for decades. And as you mentioned, you know the Male Brothers now. And you've mentioned you're also fascinated by the myth. So how do you keep in your head both the myth that you get from the external sources and the knowledge of the actual brothers? That's a good question. You know, I was very fortunate in my life to actually meet a lot of the people I admire or, or, or practical idols. You know, uh, uh, my dad uh, became friendly with uh, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. And I was a huge, like, Rolling Stones fan of that time. And the fact that he came to our house and he looked exactly like Brian Jones <laughs> from Aftermath album cover, wearing the same clothes, it was like, it was a weird, you know, you usually expect a voice difference or some type of right. difference. But the fact, here's this guy who appeared in front of me, who looked incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, this incredibly handsome and this, the, the ultimate pop star. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing funky about him at all. <laughs> and I was never let down uh, by his behavior or his um, uh, the way he looked. Mm-hmm. And he was a lovely person, by the way. There's been a lot of stories of him not being lovely, but mm-hmm. I, as a child, I really, I really liked him. And um, so a lot of people I've met over the years... You know, I, I sort of separate, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not a stalker type of person or, or I can admire somebody greatly if I like a writer, but I do not base my relationship on me liking their work or their, I mean, I'm interested in what they're doing, mm. but I separate that sort of fanboy or fan uh, um, uh, attitude towards the real person or, mm. you know, I accept them as what they are. Right. It's, it's two different things in your head, sparks mm. and the male brothers, yeah. they, they, they're, they're connected, of course. One creates the other, or, or the male brothers do a kind of work that is then mythologized into sparks by both them and by their audience, but they're separate in some important sense, right? In a certain sense, yes, but b- to be quite honest, the sparks you're getting on record on, on those album covers that's truly sparks. <laughs> and they I'm, show up looking like they, they would yes, on the album yeah, covers. Yes. And there's, yes. not, there's no real big... They live the life of Sparks, and they are truly Sparks. So it's not like a, a day job. I mean, it's a day job they're doing, but they take their work home with them, and you know, their private moments is very much Ron Mel, Russell Mel, Sparks. There's no like mm. private life of or another identity of sorts. Right. What does it mean to live the life of Sparks, other than that to be making the music of Sparks? What is the life? What does the life of Sparks mean to you? That means that they keep up the aesthetic of what I feel is the aesthetic of Sparks. Um, they have, obviously, you know, obviously I think they have really good taste. And, and you know, the fact that I, I actually, first time I ever talked to Ron Mail, 
prison person mm-hmm. was at a, was at a, a screening for a Jacques Demi movie. Oh, really? So this is which which one? Uh, donkey skin. Oh yes, yes, donkey skin. I'm, I'm not surprised to see one of the sparks. Uh, one of the sparks do turn up at donkey skin. I don't know why, but I'm not surprised. Exactly right. That's exactly what I mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't meet him at a Die Hard screening, <laughs> or <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a Jacques Demi screening where I actually started mm-hmm. talking to him, mm-hmm. and um, um, so we have a common interest: Jacques Demi, Michel mm-hmm. Legrand. You know that that, that whole French world. And you, notably, you saw, you saw just one male brother. At that time. Yes, which must have been a little bit odd on some level. Like, I've never mm. seen that guy just... I've never seen just the one brother. No. I, actually, I never... Right now, I never have separate times with them. I always see mm. them as, as, a, as, a, as a unit or together. Uh, that, that was the one time. It was only one time, yeah. Mm. It's like seeing... It's, it's like seeing... Uh, half a clock or I guess the clock half the numbers are on there yeah do you know what I mean it's it's uh there's there's an odd there's an oddity layered onto that when you when you're interacting with uh one half of a, of a dyad you've come to know that way right it is yeah I mean you've, you you know immediately I think if you see Ron you're thinking where's Russell or vice yes. versa he must be somewhere in that room mm-hmm. uh but as far as I know I think socially I mean they're you know they're, they're, the, they're the the famous Definition of brothers, and especially in bands that hate each other. Yes, I mean, there's like the Oasis guy, the Gallagher's, mm-hmm. uh, Ray Davies, and and Dave Davies, the Kinks, right. and even like the Burnett brothers, Johnny Burnett and mm-hmm. Dorsey Burnett, um, hate each. And the Everly brothers are, are famous for not liking each other. Mm-hmm. And then there are certain brothers that work as one. And in my book, I sort of make this comparison a lot with the Cray twins. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Crays were a, uh, 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 British gangsters from the sixties who ruled London or East London specifically, mm. uh, had their hands in everything in the entertainment world as well. And they were twins, uh, and they sort of like worked as one. Mm. And there's certain people like the Starn twins who are artists and, uh, uh Gilbert and George, and, you know, these are like right. male couples right, or right. brothers who just work as like sort of like one. You really don't get like separate. Uh, they have separate identities, mm. but the way they work and the way they present their work is as 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 one. There, there do seem to be more of those in in England. I mean, you mentioned the whole spectrum from criminals all the way down to Oasis. Uh, but what else? What else in London culture does Sparks resonate with that that has made them? more successful there than in some other countries and which made it a, a place they could do 21 concerts in a row? For, well, for one, many levels. One level, I think the British world or entertainment world likes eccentricities a lot. Like David Bowie would never make it as Ziggy Stardust in America unless, you know, he was English and he made it in England. So they like the theatricality of, of these artists as well as the... Um, I think they like the surface, like my reasons for liking a band. They're really, they're in tune to that already. And um, the other thing is, Sparks to me are very much what I understand at uh, music, uh, British Music Hall Entertainment. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I think of them as sort of British music entertainers. I think of them being in a small, like vaudeville theater, doing a show mm-hmm. for the for the punters, you know, for the audience. Right, yes, yes, yes. And um, um, you know, it's like a recital in a way. It's not like a, in a way, it's a rock and roll show, but I think as a rock and roll show, I think more of as a as a music hall performance, mm-hmm. and that's why I wrote about. Well, besides the mustache of Charlie Chaplin, I, Charlie Chaplin was also a, a, besides a film artist, he was a, a music hall artist as well, and and I just think there's a connection between um, 
people like Charlie Chaplin or that spirit of entertainment and a little bit of like uh, sort of the entertainer, the John uh, um, John Osborne, the uh, play, the British playwright. Oh yeah, yeah, John. Osborne. Uh, uh, the entertainer, where where it's about a, an English music. I didn't write about it in the, well in the first draft. I wrote about that book, not, not the final draft. But I sort of made comparison in the, in the original draft of like that type of music entertainer mm. who's just totally focused, and that's all he does mm. is entertain at these sort of you know small theaters throughout England, and that's his life. Mm. And in many ways, I find Sparks sort of in the same boat um, uh, by design more than uh, by because the, they have to. It's mm. it's it's. I think there's something about them like let's do a show. You know, there's like. It used to, they used to open up their shows like, let's do a spark show. They have a little theme song, a spark show. Right, right, right. So that has like a fake theatrical aspect of it already. And then they do their show. And then, you know, there's a strong Russell presence, who, what he does. And there's a raw, strong Ron male presence on the stage. Mm. So it's very much like a Lauren Hardy or, or, or Albert Costello, not with the broad slapstick humor, though there is like slapstick qualities in the show. Mm. Um, there is a sort of like a tradition, like a tradition of, 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 uh, of like British showbiz or French uh, chanteuse singing or, or, or European theater, mm. which again makes it odd because they're, 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 I mean, they're Americans. Right, yes, yes. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned France because Sparkstastic offers, of course, your personal history with Sparks, but also obviously a London travelogue, also a bit of a Paris travelogue because you mm. go to Paris first. Yes. And you have experiences there. You talk about Paris, a place with which you have a history, like you have a history with, with Sparks. Um, but... The song that Sparks did very well with in France, When I'm With You, mm-hmm. was off of an album that didn't really resonate with you, Terminal yeah. Jive, right? So you're interested in, in French culture and Paris culture and in mid-century Paris pop culture, shall we say. Why is it? What is it that, you're, I presume, your favorite band and one of your favorite periods of European cultural history, you know, and France being a favorite cultural country for you. Why, why do they like a different Spark song than you like, if that makes any sense? They have that all around the world, basically. Um, French population love that song. Yeah, why do they like that song? I, I mean, I like the song, too. I will say I've, uh, I listen to it more than some Spark songs, uh-huh. but I, I mean, I wouldn't have made it number one by myself, certainly. Uh, do you have a French background? Are you French? Or? No, I don't have anything <laughs> to do with France. <laughs> You know, I can't give you a, I can't give you a proper answer on that because there are songs that they've or albums they've done that's only popular in a specific country for some reason, and um, I'm not really sure why. I, didn't, I never liked that song because it was it was, a, it was the early 80s, mm. and, the, and the production of that album I do not like. Mm. It's a little too slick, a little too um, um, predictable. Mm. The Georgia Mortar number one song, the previous album, right. it was like a one-step, like, wow type of a record, which I didn't like at first. You know, I had to, like, sort of grow into it. But it was, it was totally a new sound, new everything. And this, I feel like, was not... Advanced, it was just sort of going backwards in a way, mm. that, that particular record. 
What, what happened to sparks in the 80s exactly? It seems like maybe, as you described them, they, they fell victim to the same trends that claimed um, number one pop stars in an even worse way. But it does seem like if any act can resist that, it would have been sparks. So what, what do you think happened? Well, they did, they did exist after that. Right. I, I think it's due to their uniqueness. One thing that never fails is really their songs. I mean, sometimes I don't like their records that... They don't write bad songs. Right. That's impossible. And here you learn that when, when it's live and not yes. layered with uh, TR-808s or whatever, whatever was yes. the production style of the mid-80s. Yeah. So I think, it, you know, they had like Angst in My Pants, uh, uh, Womp That Sucker, post very, very good albums, I think. Really good, really good strong work. Uh, but afterwards, I think they were trying to either follow a formula, and this is only my personal perspective, mm. um, and I f- or, and maybe trying to appeal. Usually, they're either behind the times or they're way ahead of the times. <laughs> and I got this point where I think they feel like they could be at last, be mm. part of the times, which is actually sort of the eighties uh, new wave, mm. uh, K rock, Los Angeles station right. world. You know the Go Go's and and uh, you know Fix and all these you know mm. Haircut One Hundred, all these sort of eighties bands as well as Los Angeles bands were really sort of popular at that time to be quirky. Right. Uh, the only difference is they're really quirky compared to some of these bands who are trying to pretend to be quirky. Yes, yes, yes. And um, I just feel at the time they were sort of misunderstood and sort of maybe either by the record labels or it just did not grab me like it did, like the earlier material. Is, is this something you've actually brought up with the Mail Brothers? Like how come you had to be produced that way in, the, in that era? Is that a question you would ask them? Or is it off the table as far as a question you would ask? I would never ask them that. I, I, when we do, I'm going to play on this podcast. <laughs> 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 but no, I, I, I never asked them that because I think they had their own reasons. I'm not really that curious about why. Again, it's sort of like I, right. it's, I'm so egotistical. <laughs> I just want to know how I get it from the records and, and the yes. performance and stuff. Um, I mean, every band who's been around for that long is going to have its ups and downs. Mm. It's impossible not to. Or you disappear for a while, don't do anything for a while. Mm. I mean, there's people like Bowie. You know, Bowie had, in my opinion, questionable <laughs> records of the, of the, you know, of the, of the 80s. Yeah. Though his his popular, low point seems to be regarded as the late 80s also, now that I think about it. And it's probably, but money-wise, it's probably where he made his, 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 his fortune. It might, it, might be, it might well be, yeah. Yeah, like Let's Dance and, you know, which is not that bad record, but it's not as mysterious or powerful as like low or right. larger or you know right. it's definitely a commercial record let's put it that way it's a, it's a good commercial album right. but from if you're a long-term hardcore bowie fan you want a little bit more right. and that, nothing they have to give you more but as a long-term fan you're looking for that more another person i'm quite fond of is is uh, scott walker mm. who's been around for maybe 50 years now and, you know, as, as anybody who may or, or know or should know Scott Walker, <laughs> you know, he's just getting, he's going more out there, out there and more crazier music. You know, he's just going forward to like uh, another planet. Mm. And therefore, as a fan, I'm never disappointed. Mm-hmm. And when you like somebody a whole career, like Scott Walker is a good example in Sparks, you accept everything they do. You know, even if it's bad, you stick with it or you don't understand it. You, you stick with it because right. you do like them, you do admire them. Because you know they have a certain aesthetic they're working for, and you know they have, you know, there's low periods, high periods. And it could be a musical listener who's right. having a low, high period as well. So it's it's you know it's a give and take situation. There's a sense in which you're approaching, you're approaching sparks. You're not approaching 
album, this album by this album by this album by this album. Though, of course, you can have many an argument about individual merits of albums, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, throughout the book, I'm sort of talking, I admit that some albums I do not like and how surprising. The shows I love were the shows with the albums I do not like. Mm, Uh, Come on, our house sounded great, fantastic. That's a classic album, classic performance. Done deal. But the ones to me that were not a done deal, that showed me like, wow, this is really interesting. You know, that, that they actually presented these songs, strange enough, very close to the, the recordings. Uh, I, 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 I clicked in my head like, wow, that's actually a great song. Or, you know, I have to re-listen to this. Mm. So seeing them doing it live in that context was, was, uh, was ear-opening for me. Mm. When you're there live seeing these shows, you, you start off noticing that the, the crowd around you, at first they're all people around Sparks's age, kind of a predictable crowd at first, mm-hmm. and then it changes as you go through the shows. It gets maybe younger as you go along, or what, what were the currents of change you most noticed as the 21 nights progressed in the people around you? Well, it's very conservative, actually, because the older shows had like older audience, not younger audience. Mm-hmm. And the first shows had like, seemed to have like a lot of males, dads bringing their kids. Not everybody had brought a kid. But I got the feeling that you're dragging their kid, girlfriend, <laughs> new wife, <laughs> and the wife and the new kids. You know, I don't get it. My daddy is a weirdo, you know. Uh, sure. You know, poor dad. <laughs> um, and they were really into the shows. Come um, on to my house had older and newer people because it's like a classic, iconic album. But strange enough, as the shows go on, the crowd got younger. Mm-hmm. Number one song in heaven, that that or number one, yeah, number one song him show. It was fascinating because all of a sudden it became a gay disco. <laughs> yes. You know, it was like overnight, like overnight. One night it was all of our rock dads mm-hmm. and some students. And then all of a sudden it became wall to wall, a gay disco. Mm. And, and same with the, the, the next album, you know, and then, and then when it got into the eighties stuff, which is not really that well known in, in London, known in Los Angeles, yeah. Uh, actually, younger people start showing up. So, uh, so I think more of the looky loos are more curious. People more curious. People are curious about them. Mm. Show up in more of the later shows. Mm. And what was your approach to living a life in in London during these shows? You talk a little bit about your routine. You know, you, when you would write, how frequently you would shave or infrequently uh, to save money on razors, and, and how you'd be there every night at seven. What what was what shape did your life take while you were doing this? Sparks attendance. Well, funny, you know, I'm a big fan of this movie called La Samurai, uh, made by uh, Melville, a French director who does a lot of like crime, French crime movies. And it's, this movie uh, stars Alain Delon, mm-hmm. where it's the most minimal role ever. He just wears a trench coat, hat. He's a hired killer, does his job, and that's it. And if, in a way, I, I, I wanted to adopt it myself <laughs> after oh, that I character. See. So I didn't want any frills. I didn't want extra books. I didn't want anything. I wore like pretty much a uniform. I cut my hair really short because I didn't want to deal with hair hair stuff. I used to really into hair stuff. And um, I didn't really have a lot of money. Money-wise, none of this made sense. I mean, it, it, you, know, you know, from the tickets to, you know, I had friends to stay with, two, two friends I could stay with. Mitigated somewhat by the fact that you're writing a book about it all, though. It's, yeah. it's, it's work at that point, right? Did it, did it, when did it become I, I, work? It became work right away because oh, I'm, I'm right. I'm, I'm one of those people that I can't do things out of pure enjoyment. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I can't like take a walk and just take a walk to enjoy mm. the, the, the weather. Mm. If I enjoy the weather, I'm going to write about it or somehow work it into something, you know, like right. a TamTam Books project or mm. hopefully get an idea or inspiration. So whenever I do anything or go anywhere or travel, it's never like for um, 
rarely like pure enjoyment. Mm-hmm. You know, once in a while, it's funny. I like I, my wife and I will go, and we're just talking like once every five or six years. I will go to a matinee movie, right. <laughs> where there's no work, there's no yes. nothing, and uh, it's very pleasurable. But it's not our lifestyles whatsoever, or, mm-hmm. or my. So doing this thing, I had to write a book. I had to if I'm going to make the effort, I'm going to spend the money, and this, I'm going to do this decadent thing by going to all the shows. Right. I have to produce a work of some sort. Mm-hmm. And I told everybody I'm going to write a book. Uh, when I tell people I write a book, that means if I don't write the book, I'm going to look this terrible in everybody's eyes. Right. You're, you're going to have... There's stakes. There's stakes at that point. Yes. So I had to do it. Mm-hmm. And to do it, I had to get myself in a mentality where I cannot... Um, uh, luckily, I've been to London mm-hmm. numerous times before this London trip, so and Paris. So it wasn't like totally a like new city to me. Um, right. So I didn't, I, you know, I didn't feel like I had to go visit museums or any of that type of thing. Mm-hmm. I'd done that already, but um, but again, I was very concerned about the expenses because to have the time to go to a chain pizza place, to have like an individual pizza and some olives and a glass of wine, it came to like thirty something dollars, you know, and it's not good food. Right. It's, good, it's, good, it's a good lesson. Spend fifty dollars on something really good. Right. You, then you're not thinking about the money because you're got, you're really having a great night. But if you're buying this like sort of almost to go food for that amount of money, you know, it's weird. So I had like a diet thing as well, where I just had like a banana for breakfast. Uh, I like to drink wine, but I had to cut the wine consumption down. And, uh, and I just wake up where I'm staying and I had a little, they gave me a room, both places. And I, I write what, what happened that day, what happened the previous night. Then I go to the shows, much like work. And then I, I try to eat, have an early evening dinner. And usually at Wagamama, which is a couple of uh, doors away from the actual venue or the concert. And Wagamama is a uh, British, I think it's British, uh, Asian-ish chain. I did wonder what that was. I figured yeah. I'd ask you rather than looking it up first. It's like a noodle place. It's sort of Japanese, Chinese, Vietnamese. It's sort of a mixture of everything, but in a sort of British sensibility. Right. And the band would sometimes eat there too, right? Or other attendees? The, ba- the band, the, 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 the musicians, the Sparks, would eat there. Mm-hmm. And Ronald Russell always ate, it seems, in their dressing room. Uh-huh. Easy food to go from there or some other place. They had a very sort of strict diet where they don't eat... Um, um, it seems to me they don't eat... Um, Exotic foods. They're very kind of very vegetarian, very uh, almost microbiotic food. Is that what keeps them looking youthful? I guess as youthful, youthful as they look at this. I mean, they look a little bit. You mentioned them being ageless, which I guess is in some sense true. But it's not like they're pop stars that make themselves young in various ways. They don't. In some sense, they never really looked young, young, but they don't look like mid-60s pop stars. Well, yeah, especially Ron, Ron Mayo, who always looks older because of the mustache right. and clothing. He looks like you know the older brother or the dad, even. Right, right, right. So, so the whole age thing is not an issue, really. Right. Um, but they don't drink. They don't drink. They don't, you know, they don't, they're not in the drug world at all. Um, mm. They're very much a very of a, a working unit where they sort of focus on the work. Mm. They're not into luxury. They're really into like working. They're into like making Sparks music and doing a Sparks show. And they're very, very, fo- I mean, as far as I can see, sincerely, this is what they're focused on. They collect stuff. I mean, they collect like toys. They collect, um, uh, uh, you know, we both love Japan. Mm. So we, you know, they collect, you know, they, you know, they collect like pachinko machines. <laughs> so, but they're, but it's very sort of focused collections, you know. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it, you know, it's all part of the world. It's very sort of somehow sort of sparksistic mm. what they what they what they do. So again, they didn't. I you know, um, 
when I did, I did have one meal with them in London, mm-hmm. and it was at Wagamama, but a different, <laughs> but a different location. Another one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did you get the sense from them that this was anything different than they normally do, or was doing twenty-one album album shows in London just? Of course, we would do this for them. You know what I mean? Like this is this is the next step. This is, of course, this is something we would do. Why is it something that was that they seem to regard as unusual at all? It seems unusual to us that the band would do that, but I can see to them it would also be natural. Uh, that's part of their charm to do unnatural things naturally. Yes. If that makes sense. <laughs> um, I think they're always thinking that they're competitive in a sense, not against another band. I think competitive against the world out there where they have to do something unique or something different. Mm. And in their minds, this is something totally different. Uh, I'm sure in their minds, no other artists, recording artists have ever done anything like this in such mm. a degree. Mm. Like they didn't skip any albums, you know? I mean, if they just did come on to my house, you know, certain periods, it probably financially probably even made more sense. Right. But the fact is they did everything well, it is mind blowing, but the, but it, ha, it, it is conceptual. Right. So they, they do think conceptually. I mean, they think of uh, as as, but in a strange way, it's also very logical for them. I mean, it's mm. not like weird. Right. It strikes me kind of weird they would do this. <laughs> it may strike somebody else kind of weird they would do every album. Right. But to them, it's not weird. It's right. it, it it makes perfect sense. What's well, the same thing as you writing the book, isn't it? I mean, they they monasticize this task by being strict about playing all the albums and rehearsing mm-hmm. at such a rigid, rigorous schedule, and that that almost gives them not just permission for the project, but galvanizes it for them. And and you did the same with your routine in London, writing a book about this, attending rigorously every show. There's a sort of monasticization there too. It's kind of the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I find. All the work, I mean, I, even when I was book by a book soup, I had to work every day. Mm-hmm. I had to keep the, uh, the, the, not just the volume of books, but sort of a certain taste curating the store. Mm-hmm. And I had to do that every day. And there was not one day where I could not, well, as a book buyer, I could not right. not do it. I had to take care of it every day. Mm-hmm. It could mean just be an hour a day on my day off. And, and not a complaint. It was something I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't do it other. I couldn't do it otherwise. Right. I, I couldn't do it in a casual sense. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing with mm-hmm. me. And um, and I think I got to a point where, where if you want to do something, you really have to put that focus in to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may not be successful. You may fail. And failure is perfectly okay. Mm-hmm. Success is great, but in between success and failure is strikes me as totally depressing. It stops being about success and failure at a certain point. It's about you adhering to a task, right? Or you adhering to you obeying your own orders. It's it's that's a, that's the form of success you start caring about. It's not what the rest of the world does in response to it. It's just can I successfully execute these actions, right? Well, yeah. And in a strange way, you know, I could have done like a documentary of the band. I had full access to to uh, Ronald Russell as well as the band to interview them wherever I wanted, but I didn't want to do that. And uh, and they were okay with it, actually. That, that was not a problem at all. But I think, logically, if you're going to do that, you're going to do a documentary of some sort. Mm. But I, when I was doing documenting my feelings for the shows more and my impressions of the city, um, I wanted to take it in sort of a, a higher, in my mind, a literary level. Mm. I mean, I, want, I really wanted to write a literary book, not only for Sparks fans. Actually, not even, I wasn't even thinking about Sparks fans, to tell you the truth. Mm. It's more about me liking a great artist and why I like them and how it affected me. And also I want 
they actually turn people on to the band as well, like show mm-hmm. and tell. Like, and actually, I, a lot of people who read the book don't know Sparks that well or don't know them at all. And actually got them to go to Spotify to listen to each album. I know, I know a couple right. of readers who read one chapter, because each chapter is one show, one album, mm-hmm. and they'll read the chapter, and then they listen to the album. Ah, not a bad way to do it. No, not at all. It's actually a great way of doing it. You know, sort of like, you know, rea- you know, reacting or working with the book. Mm-hmm. It's nice. It works for, you know, works for that reader, works for, you know, obviously works for the band's music and for my mm-hmm. book as well. I mentioned before we recorded, the form of this book is, it's almost like a francophone book. I mean, it's like the some of the modern books in translation I read from French authors. I'm not sure quite what about it, but the fact that it's there's sort of multiple personal histories going on at once and the, the way that you weave culture into it or that you base it on a, a separate thread of culture and in your interaction with it. You you publish books that originate, originate in the French language. Do you think that has any validity, that, that idea yeah. that this is more of a French form than an English language form? What struck me, I mostly... Uh, published the works of Boris Vian. And uh, for those out there who don't know Boris Vian's work, um, Boris Vian was the focus point personality of post-war Paris mm-hmm. from like 46 to like 59 when he died, died quite young. And uh, Vian had his fingers and toes and nose and tongue in every interesting aspect of French culture at that mm-hmm. time. And he brought American jazz musicians to uh, France, to Paris, was a record A&R person, as well as a novelist. He was a translator of hard-boiled American crime novels into mm-hmm. French, and he knew everybody from Juliet Greco to Miles Davis to Charlie Parker to Jean-Paul Sartre to Cocteau mm-hmm. and onward. And he was the guy you go to if you want to meet somebody. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Vian also was in the nightclubs a lot. And um, he was... And one of the many things he did, he was also wrote jazz column or jazz criticism because, of course, he was a huge jazz fan. And I, th- when I was writing the book, I, th- I was thinking about him a lot because he always, not like, I'm an extra, I'm a professor. You know, there's, there's two type of uh, jazz music at the time. They were against each other. One was um, uh, New Orleans jazz, trad jazz, and then bebop. And Vian, weird enough, played a trumpet, played traditional jazz, but, but love and support it with his writings, bebop jazz. Ah. And then it was like a war. It's like sort of like mods versus rockers type of thing. <laughs> so when Vian wrote about uh, a, a jazz artist recording, it was very like sort of like punk rock, actually, when you read it. It's very um, uh, like this full of passion. You know, I'm not even sure if it's even accurate, his opinions, or like mm. he got the facts right. It doesn't really matter. It's the fact that he loves this record, how the record affects him. Right. And he's Boris Vian. Right. And I want to write that book the same way. Like, I love Spark. I don't know if all the facts are factual, right. but I'm Tosh. And I want to put yes. my, I want, I want, I want it to, to, to be a performer in the book of sorts. And, 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 and that, and, and always the writer or the reader has to be aware that it's my story or it's, it's a narrative sort. And you may not like that narrative or maybe get some way of the narrative or, or your, or that reader's appreciation of Sparks. But nevertheless, mm. It is my take on the culture of Sparks as well as Sparks music. Hmm. And because of Boris Vian being you know, a French writer. There's, there's a sense that when you're writing about an album, let's say you're writing about Kimono My House, you, you could write, I love Kimono My House. You could write, Kimono My House is a great album, but to, it doesn't, that, sentences like those don't necessarily mean anything to a reader who doesn't know you. You, you have to write, as you said, about its effect 
its effect on you, and those don't necessarily best include the words love or great, right? No, it's not. For me, my love of, of a culture, of album, of, I write actually a lot about music lately. You know, I'm, I'm doing like a music, I'm actually working on an idea of writing a music book. Mm. But, you know, a lot of times I'll write music reviews, it's nothing about the melody or the words. I'm, I'm writing about a feeling I get from the record. And same, you know, when I write little book reviews or commentary on books, I, you know, very rarely I remember the narration. Location is important to me. The character is important to me. And that's basically it. I like noir books because not of the plotting necessary, but it's about a city and it's about a character or, or various characters and how they interact with their location. You know, when I go to a bookstore, my ideal bookstore, and I didn't do this at Book Soup, but I would love to go to a London section where I just get literature based in London or Paris or anywhere in the world. That's how I would separate the, the fiction section. But not author, but like, <laughs> but like, but, but location. Yeah, no, I, I would certainly browse those shelves myself. I'd, I'd like to see that. But uh, talking about cities, you you mentioned in the book that Paris pop culture has a bit of a it has a curiosity to it, a, a driving curiosity. It pulls from other sources and adapts them for itself. You found, I believe, in London that its pop culture is a bit more hardened, a bit more closed off. Um, if you can correct me if I have that not quite right, but. Whether I do or don't, I mean, how does how does Los Angeles compare? Seeing as sparks emerged from Los Angeles, and that's always put as a surprise. Like, can you believe they came out of the greater Los Angeles area? But also, I, I think it's somehow not a surprise as well. Their their own adaptability and their making themselves outsiders wherever they happen to be. That seems to be a Los Angeles quality as well. I don't know how, if you agree or not. I do. You know, Los Angeles. Like London's a great city, even though I have troubles with as, uh, aspects of London mm. life and, and the city itself. Paris, Tokyo is another city I love. Paris and Los Angeles, incredible city, and it's an incredible city because of what it is. I mean, it's 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 a surface city, which I like, <laughs> like yes. in my bands, because various people come here to work in the entertainment industry. They come here to pretend to be somebody else, or or to make stories that's not necessarily their stories, but they're, they're it's pretend, it's pretend town. Mm. As well as being an incredible multicultural uh, uh, location of, of various restaurants, foods, people. I mean, taking a bus, I'm a bus rider. If you just take the bus from downtown to Santa Monica, you run, I mean, I probably run across, I don't know, four or five different languages. <laughs> right, definitely. You know, and, it, and it's fascinating. I mean, it's an incredible city. I mean, Los mm. Angeles is truly, truly uh, incredible city. I mean, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, but I never ever felt. You know, it's funny when I'm away from Los Angeles, I don't miss it at all. Mm-hmm. But my appreciation of Los Angeles is really, really great. I think this. You know, I love stories that take place in Los Angeles. I love the people of Los Angeles, and Los Angeles itself is an incredible character. Mm-hmm. I mean, a beautiful, uh, beautiful character. And it's not a place you think is going to, you know, it's not going to go away when you're gone. Uh, you think maybe, oh, the, the London I know might change into into unrecognizability. The Paris I love might go away. You never think Los Angeles is going anywhere, right? Well, that's, that's another beauty aspect of it. The cities I like, like Tokyo and Los Angeles could be totally wiped out in an earthquake. Like, gone. Right. So that, Indeed, sometimes it seems likely. It, it does seem likely. To, to me, it does. Mm-hmm. So that is a real, real feeling I have that it will not last forever here. Mm. And it doesn't terrify me, but it, it, it makes me think about 
I really appreciate the moments I am here. The same as in Tokyo. Um, I just feel that, you know, I, you walk around downtown and it's just, you know, downtown itself is just absolutely fascinating part of Los Angeles. And, you know, um, I do hope they get the metro system really first class. And I think they're heading that direction. It's getting there. You know, I would love to just to walk downtown and just take a train to like Santa Monica. Right. You know, know, just, just not even think about it, not even plan for it. Mm. And because like in Tokyo, you don't really have to plan There's so much transportation everywhere, like subways, trains, right. all excellent. And Paris is that way too, like central Paris. Mm-hmm. London's a little bit more tricky because there's central London. If you're outside of that, in that central London area, it's kind of hard to get to places. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, the beauty of Los Angeles for me is realizing that it will not be here forever. I don't mm-hmm. think it will be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it'll be, you know, I, I hate to say, I know, not to be a doomslayer, but there will be a disaster of some sort. And, right. And, you know, I live here, and that's, in, in many ways, that's perfectly okay. It's probably not disappearing when you're away on a trip, but in the long run, it's not going to be here. Well, strange. You know, when I was in, I, I lived in Japan, and it was Japan in eighty nine ninety, which was no internet. And I was in a very small town in Japan. And so any English news I get was like two or three days later. Mm. And at the time in 89, many things happened. The Berlin Wall went down. Right. And uh, also, the earth, there was a huge earthquake in San Francisco, mm. and a serious earthquake in San Francisco at that time. And I didn't know. I, some Japanese people told me about it, and they didn't speak English that well or at all. But I gathered something bad happened in San yes. Francisco, and I went, "San Francisco, gone." And they went, "Yes." And that's the and for so two days. I thought there was no San Francisco anymore. <laughs> so it was in my oh. head, you know, oh. and. Um, yeah, so the, so the moment that, uh, yeah, it, so you, you sort of appreciate the moments that you're here. And the shows, the Spark shows, are never, are n- it was never going to be repeated. Mm. You know, and the fact the last show was the most sort of emotional and most poignant for me because um, the very last show, um, the band projected the album covers on a big screen. So basically it was like the first album. Ron Mill got out of his away from his keyboard, he had a lighter, like a little Vic yes. lighter. He, he looked like he was lighting the screen and the album cover would like flame up. Mm. Then the next album showed up. He burns that. So in a sense, it's either them destroying their work, all the work they've done, or limiting that work so they can do something new, mm. or doing some type of house cleaning. But the fact that they, it was just really, really emotionally incredible to see an artist at least to me, make a comment about their work and about sort of burning the work afterwards. Mm, it's it's a stark contrast to so many bands of their age who are burdened, overburdened by their history. You know, Los Angeles is also not that burdened by its history, isn't it? No, no. And, it, it may, and this may be part of the Los Angeles aspect of Sparks where, you know, we don't feel that secure and that safe <laughs> or we accept that insecurity. That's a better word. We, we accept the insecurity or that sort of uh, nervous tension, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't, as do sparks yeah I mean I don't know about you but I'm, I'm always conscious because I've been through one really huge bad earthquake here mm. that to make sure my glasses or my pants are around <laughs> yeah, yes indeed you know, in, I mean, in reaching distance yeah I, I'm very conscious of that right. you know and in fact uh, and also my father was killed in a car accident so to this day uh, if people are driving I always tell people to drive safely or just like you know, if my wife goes out I tell her you know drive carefully Mm. And it really just takes me back to that moment when uh, I lost my father in a car accident. 
Right. It's, I mean, we talk about monasticization, but, you know, awareness of impermanence, that's, that, that's a part of that whole life, is it not? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So it's sort of like you can't avoid that lost or, you know, it's just, you live with it. And I feel that way about Los Angeles and, and I felt this way about seeing the spark shows. Mm. Will never happen again. I was there for the moment and it was very, a very special moment. It was very like, um, um, I, was, I just felt so fortunate being there, but also to experience uh, an artist giving so much to their to their catalog and to their work, mm-hmm. and then the end, the last show, they actually burn <laughs> symbolically. They burn their they burn all their albums. Mm-hmm. I made a really well. This made a huge impression. I mean, especially as my my thoughts of you know sort of fatal, you know fatalism and and, and, and being a city that will not be around anymore. Mm-hmm. It all fit into my my point of view. I've been speaking with Tosh Berman. He was the longtime book buyer at Book Soup on the Sunset Strip. He is the founder of Tam Tam Books and the author of Sparks-tastic, 21 Nights with Sparks, in London. Tosh, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can find much more at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks. Thanks.